Corinthians chapter 15. Resurrection chapter. And just read a few verses together. I really enjoyed that singing this morning. That was fantastic, wasn't it? Looking forward to that tonight again. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, reading from verse 3. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. And after that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. Let's just stop there. It was John Stott, the late John Stott, who said, perhaps the transformation of the disciples of Jesus is the greatest evidence of all for the resurrection. It was the resurrection that transformed Peter's fear into courage and Thomas's doubt into faith. It was the resurrection that changed the Sabbath into Sunday and the Jewish remnant into the Christian church. It was the resurrection which changed Saul the Pharisee into Paul the Apostle and turned his persecuting into preaching. Resurrection of Jesus Christ had a profound effect upon the early church and is still having a profound effect upon the church today. It is an inconvertible fact that Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. Because of Christ's resurrection from the dead, this is why the Apostle Paul wrote this glorious 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. These words have given hope to countless millions over the centuries. Death is such an adversary. Death is such a blight on God's greatest creation, mankind. Without the resurrection, there's neither point nor purpose to this very brief breath of life that we have on this earth. Without the resurrection, there could be no glorious reunions in heaven. Without the resurrection, there would be no writing of all the wrongs and the injustices. Because the Bible says that it's given unto man once to die, and then after that, the judgment. Paul writing here in verse 3 and 4, he makes this simple but remarkable statement that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Christ died. All men, all the sons and daughters of Adam die. All men are mortal and they die from the very moment that we are born. From that very first breath that we take, we're on the countdown to dying. It's a paradox. From the very moment you begin to live, from that very moment you begin to die. All men die. Now, of course, the advent of modern medicine has prolonged our average life expectancy, no end. But it cannot stop the inexorable tick-tock of this life's little day. By the time the Apostle John wrote his gospel, all of the great heroes of the Scriptures had died. All of the Old Testament worthies Many of them listed in Hebrews 11. All of them, without exception, dead. Even all of John's contemporaries. All of the apostles. Matthew and Simon and Peter. All of them are gone. He was the only one left by the time he wrote his gospel. In Adam, all die. Even the great apostle Paul, by that time, was long since dead and gone. 
Paul says Christ died, but his death was different. He says Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. There was countless men who were crucified in Jesus' day. He wasn't the only one crucified. Countless numbers. Sometimes hundreds at a time by the Roman authorities. But his death was different. Many of those people died for their own sins because of their sins. But Jesus died for our sins. He was the only one that was ever crucified that died for our sins. The wages of sin is death. And he paid the wages that we owed. But then he gave us the gift of God, which is eternal life. His death was different. It says he died according to the scriptures. Paul was very adamant about that. He mentions it a couple of times. Sometimes you glance over those little things, but it's important. He died according to the scriptures. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53 writes in great detail about his death. We quote it often at the Lord's table, do we not? And the psalmist in Psalm 22, if you care to look at that just for a moment, Jesus quoted this on the cross when he was dying. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? And then down to verse six. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head, saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Then verse 12. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shred. And my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I count all my bones and they look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. And so you see in that great messianic psalm that even Jesus on the cross fulfills so many things that he went through. In Psalm 34 and 20 he says, Not a bone of his body shall be broken. Psalm 41 and 9, you don't need to turn to these. He would be betrayed by a friend. And wasn't he? Psalm 69, 21. He would be given vinegar mixed with gall to drink. And he was. Isaiah 53 and 9. He would be with the rich in his death. And he was. And we'll speak about that a little bit later. Zechariah 11 and 12. Betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Again and again. He died according to the scriptures. Isaiah 50 and 6, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. Isaiah 53 and 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Pilate was amazed. Have you nothing to say in your defense? Do you not know I have the power to take your life? And when he stood before Herod, not a word, not one word passed his lips. He would not speak to that man. Fulfilling the scriptures. Christ died according to the scriptures. It was no accident. It wasn't as if some misfortune had befallen him. This was something that was pre-planned from eternity past. It was carried out in the most precise detail. It fulfilled so many scriptures. Even the two in the road to a mess. We shared that last week. In Luke 24, he said, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. 
Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He knew every one of those scriptures. He had read them many, many times. Can you imagine reading all of those scriptures and thinking, this is me. They will pierce my hands and my feet. They will mock and ridicule me on a cross. Christ died according to the scriptures. It's important that we go by the scriptures. Christ dying and rising again is constantly under attack, the truth of it. And the only way we can counter it is by the scriptures. We go to those scriptures and we say, yes, he died according to those scriptures. It was prophesied. It was predicted. It was promised. Even Jesus proclaimed it. He died according to the scriptures. And he was buried and he rose again according to the scriptures. Over the years, the skeptics and the enemies of the cross have tried to discredit the death and the burial of Jesus with ridiculous stories. Two in particular began at his very hour of death and burial. One was that he hadn't really died at all. That he had just fainted. And whenever they put him into the coolness of the tomb, he revived. That's the old swoon theory. And he revived. And he let himself out. But of course that's a nonsense, isn't it? And the other one was that he actually did die. And he was put in the tomb. But his disciples came. And somehow they came and they stole away his body. And then they said that he had risen from the dead. And there's more, but those two in particular. Now those hardened Roman executioners, there's no way that they would have made such a mistake. And the enemies of Christ that were around that cross, there was no way they would have allowed those soldiers to take the bodies of the cross unless they knew for sure that he was dead. And these soldiers had presided over too many deaths to know when somebody was dead. Remember whenever they got the order from the authorities to break the legs of the prisoners to hasten their death because of the imminent Passover feast? Because the Jews didn't want those bodies hanging up for all to see during the sacred Passover. And how when the executioners came and they broke the legs of the two thieves on either side of Christ, but when they came to Jesus, how they were surprised that he was dead already? Because his death was relatively quick. It wasn't any less painful, but it was relatively quick. He said it was finished. He had done what he came to do. And so when they came to break his legs, they saw that they, he was dead already. But just to make absolutely sure, one of them took his spear and he plunged it up into the side of Jesus and it pierced his very heart. And it says there came forth blood and water. And so there can be no question that Jesus died on that cross. He had not, had he only fainted and had that soldier not plunged that into his heart and had he went into that tomb, what hope would there ever have been of him and his weakened, desperate state ever to get out of that tomb by himself? It would have been impossible. And then besides that, there's the matter of the grave clothes. Remember Jesus was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea who was a very wealthy, very rich man. And again that fulfilled scripture, Isaiah 53 and 9. He would be with the rich in his death. You know Isaiah wrote that over 700 years before it happened. When he prophesied that it took seven centuries for that to come true. But it came true. And Joseph and his friend Nicodemus, these Two men who were members of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, you remember, was the council, the Jewish council, the religious council that actually put Jesus to death. And they weren't in agreement with that. 
They were secret disciples of Jesus, but they were powerless to stop it. But here they come with one final reverence and respect for the body of Jesus. They come to anoint his body for burial with costly spices. 100 pounds of marin aloes. Not only was that a weighty amount, but that was a costly amount. But they were rich. They felt it was the least they could do for the master. And so this would involve wrapping the body in new white linen strips and smearing each layer with these beautiful, aromatic, fragrant spices. And it would take a while to do that. But they wanted to do that. And so they would do that, and then that would be from head to toe, but over the face there would be a a linen napkin that would be placed over the face. And then he would be left there, and then the stone would be rolled over the tomb. There would be a big groove in the rock, and a big stone would be, like a big millstone would be pushed into that, and then it would be sealed. And of course, the idea would be that the body would be encased like in a cocoon of these linen strips with aromatic spices. And in a while, it would, it would dry out. And it would literally be like a cocoon. And that's what Jesus would be. You remember whenever Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and he came out of the grave and Jesus said, loose him and let him go. Take off those grave cloths and let him go. It doesn't tell us how he came out. But he didn't just stride out because that would be from head to toe. So he probably shuffled out like a penguin because only his feet could move. His hands couldn't move. And that was the way that Jews buried their people in those days. And still do as far as I know. John chapter 20 is interesting. When we're talking about these grave clothes. Verse 1, now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came or went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple, that was John, whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together. And the other disciple, that's John who's writing, outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down, looking in, saw the linen cloth lying there. Yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloth lying there. And the handkerchief, or the napkin that had been around the head. Not lying with the linen cloth, but folded together in a place by itself. That's three times these linen cloths are mentioned. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also. This is John. And he saw and believed. Now isn't that interesting? He didn't see Jesus because he wasn't there. What prompted him to believe? The grave cloths. Something about the grave cloths. Mentions it three times. He saw and believed, for as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And the disciples went away again to their own homes. Something about the grave clothes got their attention. And it's really not too hard to figure out what that was. Jesus didn't have to somehow take off those grave clothes. He simply passed through them. 
Just the way that later that night, much later that very evening, he would pass through the walls of that room where the disciples were and just appear before them. We talked about that last week. So he simply passed through the grave clothes. So when they come in, it wasn't a pile of grave clothes all stripped off lying in a corner. When they came in, they saw the grave clothes as if somebody had been still in the grave clothes, but they were no longer in it. The napkin was put to the side, and they looked, and they couldn't see anybody in that cocoon of grave clothes. He was gone. Three times it tells us. It got his attention, and he believed. He had no other explanation. Christ was gone. He was gone. You know, let me just add this. Those angels did not have to roll away that stone to let Jesus out because he would just pass through that tomb. They rolled away the stone not to let Jesus out but to let the disciples in. That was the reason for it. Remember the woman coming early that morning who will roll away the stone for us because it was heavy. But when they got there it was already rolled away. He rose again according to the scriptures. Another theory, of course, is that Jesus didn't die on the cross, or Jesus did die on the cross, that he was buried, but that the disciples came and stole away his body. But this really does not stand up to scrutiny either. In Matthew chapter 27, Verse 57 of Matthew 27. Now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself also had become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock, And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. Now, we should actually, when you read that there, you should put that together with John 19. Because John fills in a little bit more detail. And it's important detail. John 19, towards the end of that chapter... Verse 38, after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus, and Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. And they took the body of Jesus, note this, and they bound it in strips of linen. Not just a linen cloth, but in strips of linen, as I told you before. With the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. And the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, which no one had yet lain. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. And over there again, back to Matthew 27. Verse 16, and they laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock, and he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. And on the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees together uh, went, gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that while he was still alive, how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest the disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead, so the last deception will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go your way, make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting 
the guard. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothes as white as snow. And the guard shook for fear and became like dead men. And the angel answered and said to the woman, Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen as he said, come see the, and he said, come see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. Indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. There, there you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring, bring his disciples' word. Well, let me just read on. Verse 11. Now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests and all the things that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them. His disciples came at night and stole away him away while he slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Let me give you quickly just a few reasons why that theory doesn't hold up. First of all, why would the disciples who deserted a living Jesus, why would they risk their lives for a dead Jesus? Doesn't make any sense, does it? Why would those cowards, because that's what they were, who ran at the most crucial moment in Christ's life at his trial, which was a a mock sham trial, and they ran in fear of their lives, why would they go and steal the body of a dead Jesus and risk their very lives? And why would they leave the grave clothes behind? Surely if they're going to steal the body, getting in and getting out would be, time would be of the essence. Why in the world would they have left grave clothes if they're going to steal the body? And anyway, those spice cloths around the body of Jesus would have been very hard to unravel and it would have been sticky and messy. Why in the world would they do that? And why would they have taken the bother to take that napkin and fold it neatly and lay it to one side? Why would they do that? And why would they even pretend that there was a resurrection? The chief priests, we just read it there, said... This deceiver said, three days and I will rise. None of his disciples, not one of his followers, had the remotest notion that Jesus would rise from the dead. They hadn't even the notion that he was going to die in the first place. At one point, Jesus was explaining to them about his death and his burial and his resurrection. Peter butts in. And said, Lord, be it far from you that this should happen. It wasn't even any thinking. And Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. You savor not the things that be of God, but the things that be of man. So the resurrection is not even remotely in their thoughts. Didn't even figure in their thinking. It still doesn't make sense. And anyway, if those guards had fallen asleep... How did they know the disciples took the body? Can you imagine the guards going to Pilate? And Pilate saying to him, listen, fellas, tell me what happened. Well, it was like this, sir. We were very tired. It was the middle of the night, and we just fell over asleep. We didn't mean to, but there you go. We just fell asleep. Oh, you fell asleep, did you? Well, tell me this. When you were sleeping, did you hear anything? Never heard a thing. Well, when you're sleeping, did you see anything? Never saw a thing. Well, how do you know it was the disciples? I mean, it's nonsense, isn't it? I mean, Pilate was a cruel man, but he wasn't an idiot. 
I mean, he would have spotted that a mile away. No. He didn't faint. He didn't swoon. And yes, he did rise from the dead. The disciples didn't steal the body. But note again, he said, Paul said, he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Not only was his death in scripture and his burial, but his resurrection. His resurrection was foretold in the Old Testament and it was foreshadowed in the Old Testament. In Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching his first sermon at Pentecost. And in the middle of it, here's what he said, verse 22 of Acts 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by lawless hands have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, and then he quotes Psalm 16. Because that's one of the places where it was foretold. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Do you remember again when Jesus went to raise Lazarus? Remember what Mary said when he said, roll away the stone? She says, but Lord, he's been in that tomb for four days. By this time, he stinketh. Corruption had set in. That's what she believed. Of course, Jesus raised him from the dead. And so, you prophesied, you will not leave my soul in Hades. No corruption. No fourth day. Raised on the third day as the scriptures foretold. Isaiah 53, that wonderful, glorious chapter. Verse 10 and 11, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, for he shall see his seed and prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. He shall prolong his days. His resurrection was foretold. There's many other scriptures which we haven't time to go into. His resurrection was foreshadowed. Lots of types in the Old Testament, shadows of the reality that was common, which was Christ. And one of them is in Genesis 22, is that amazing story of Abraham and Isaac here going up the mountain where God told them to go and to kill his only son. Well, they had another son, he had Ishmael, who was well, long since was gone by this time. But this was his only son of promise. Verse 1, it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. Then he said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. 
So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place which God had told him. And then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to the young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. Now when it says the lad and I, it's not a little boy. He's a young man by now, strong, full of health and strength. Glad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. He's doing all this by faith. So Abraham took the wood and the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. Both of them were deeply involved in this. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, he said, Here am I, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. You know, Isaac at any moment could have resisted this. He could have refused this. He wasn't a little boy. He was a young, strong man. Abraham's an old man now. The two of them went together. And so they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order, and he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. For the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the lad nor do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked. And there behind him was a ram, not a lamb, but a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide, or Jehovah Jireh, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. In Hebrews chapter 11, where you see the fulfillment of that story. says in verse 17, by faith Abraham when he was tested offered up Isaac and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son of whom it was said in Isaac your seed shall be called concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead as in a resurrection when he said to those two young men he says I and the Lord will come back to you His faith said, God's asking me to do this. And if I do this, because he told me this is my son of promise, I believe that God will even raise him from the dead after I do this. That's mighty faith, isn't it? That is incredible faith. But note what it says after this. Concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. This is a type of Christ who was to come. And both the Father and the Son were in this together. And the Son bowed to the Father's will. Not my will, but thine be done. Both were in this together. It pleased the Lord, as I said, to bruise him. So this is a type of Christ. And it's a wonderful type. Foreshadowed all the way back there in the Old Testament. The old song, How Great Thou Art. And when I think that God, his son not sparing. Abraham's son was spared. The angel of the Lord says, don't do it. I've proven you. But look, there's a ram caught in the thicket. Not a lamb, but a ram. They were looking for a lamb, but there was a ram. 
But Jesus was the Lamb of God. And he would not be spared. When I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. And no wonder we say, how great thou art. And so, Isaac was a type. Jonah was a type. And I'm going quickly. Jonah was a type. In Matthew chapter 12, we're almost finished. Verse 38 of Matthew 12. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and an adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given it to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus used Jonah as an illustration, as a type of his death and burial and resurrection. That's one of the reasons why we all should believe in the story of Jonah. That's one of the other Bible stories that critics say, well, how in the world could a man be swallowed by a fish? You know, and they go on and go on and go on. Jesus had no problem believing it. Jesus used that as an illustration of his death and burial and resurrection. So I think that we should believe it. Don't you? And then of course, which we don't need to read, in John chapter 2, they were looking at admiring the great temple. And Jesus told them how that temple was going to be destroyed. But he says, this temple, talking about his body, this temple. And he talked about how it would be destroyed in that sense. But it would be raised up again in three days. And those standing misunderstood that, didn't they? They were still thinking of the physical temple. He was talking about himself. And so not only was his resurrection foretold in Scripture, but it was foreshadowed in Scripture again and again and again. And there's more, but we haven't time to go into it. Finally, Paul says, as we close, in 1 Corinthians 15, finally he says, he rose again the third day according to the Scripture in verse 5, and that he was seen by Cephas, that's Peter, And he was seen by Cephas. What a moment that must have been for the Christ denier. (laughs) For the one who even betrayed the Lord. And then suddenly he saw him. We're not exactly sure what part of the day when he saw him, but he saw him. Certainly seen him that night in that room, but at some point during that day he saw him. And what a moment that must have been to see the risen, resurrected Lord. Peter saw him. And it goes on to say, and he was seen by the 12. Remember, Judas is gone. So who's the 12th? Matthias. An axe in the upper room. Remember, lots were drawn to see who would take the place of Judas the Apostle and Matthias, the lot was Matthias. Now that wasn't the first time Matthias was among the disciples. Obviously he had been there probably almost from the beginning. But he wasn't one of the 12 apostles. He was a disciple, like many disciples. Remember Jesus sent 70 out? So there's lots of them. But there was those 12 that were special that became apostles. And now Matthias has taken that place. So it's not hard to understand how that on that resurrection day, Matthias would be one of the ones who would be there and have seen him. Because there was others. The woman saw him. There was two in the road to Emmaus saw him. There's others saw him. So he said the 12. 
Then he said, And after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to this present, but some have fallen asleep. Paul's writing this 20 years, just 20 years after the event. And many of those who had saw Jesus out of that 500 were still alive. And for all we know, Paul could have spoken to them. But there's no doubt about it. There was hundreds saw the risen, resurrected Lord. It wasn't just a few of the close disciples. Hundreds saw him. Then he said, after that, he was seen by James. Then all the apostles. James. James, who was the half-brother of Jesus. James was probably the toughest nut to crack. James did not believe in Jesus as Messiah. Did not believe in his resurrection until that moment when Jesus appeared to him after the resurrection. And at that moment, everything, everything made sense. At that moment, he became a true believer. James wrote the little book of James towards the end of the Bible. And if you read chapter 1, verse 1, and chapter 2, verse 1, you'll see the honor he paid to Jesus, how he addressed him in that epistle. No longer as his brother, but the Lord Jesus Christ. He was humbled, and he was fully acceptant, acceptant of Jesus being the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul said he was seen by James. And James probably would have been the one who would be instrumental on the rest of Jesus' family believing in him. Remember that Jesus had four brothers. There was James, there was Joseph, there was Simon, and there was Judas. Not Judas Iscariot, but another Judas. That was a common name. And then he had at least two sisters. Because John tells that he had at least two sisters. And probably all of them, none of them believed in this, but probably all of them believed, probably in the witness and testimony, first of all, of James. And then Paul said, Then, last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Last of all, he was seen by me on the road to Damascus. What an experience. What a turning point. What a pivotal moment in the life of that persecutor. The one who hated Christ and hated Christians and was putting them to death and even causing them to blaspheme. But when he met Christ, <laughs> when he met Jesus, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you persecuting. <laughs> and from that moment on, from that moment on, his life was changed forever. And he became the great apostle Paul, two-thirds of the New Testament, penned by his hand. What a transformation. We have every reason to believe that Jesus is alive today. He died according to the scriptures. He was buried according to the scriptures. He rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And I could go on and say, and he's sitting at the right hand of the Father according to the scriptures. And he's coming back soon for his saints according to the scriptures. That's all in the book here, folks. It's according to the scriptures. What a savior. What a father God that will allow his son to come and to die in our place and to take our sins upon himself and then to rise again from the dead. And he is coming very, very soon. And the Bible says, every eye shall see him and they shall look upon him whom they have pierced. <laughs> what a wonderful day that's going to be. Glory to God. Let's pray. Lord, we take these moments together and we thank you that your word is absolutely sure and true. And Lord, we can bank on it. We can count on it. We live our very lives according to it. 
And Lord, we thank you for the confidence that it gives us. And we bless you that you truly are alive today. That you are sitting at the right hand of your Father. And that you will return for those who love you and serve you. So we bless you this day. And we give you thanks for this great resurrection morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Kenneth's going to come and he's going to lead us in communion. Could those who serve him please come forward this morning? It was just uh, this morning, it was just uh, when I was just thinking about the service, about the Easter Sunday, uh, I was just reading uh, in Matthew 27, verse 45 and 46. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I was just thinking, the word why, why did God turn his back on his own son for that moment? Is because of his great love to, toward each and every one of us today. That he loved us so much that he turned his own back on his own son, Jesus. And that just shows us this morning how much he loves us. It's so powerful, just so wonderful in this Resurrection Sunday that we can just give him praise and give him thanks. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. That the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup, and when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he comes. Thank you this morning, Father, because we gather around your table and just remember that wonderful price that was paid for each and every one of us. We didn't deserve it, Father God. But we just want to thank you, Father God, if we, oh, Adam who fell in the garden, that you sent your son Jesus, the second Adam, that we may be reconciled unto yourself, Father. So we thank you this morning. We thank you for that body which is broken, and that precious blood was, mar- was shed like never before, like no man, Father God. We just give you praise and we give you thanks this morning, Father God, for your wonderful grace and your wonderful mercy that we didn't deserve, but we love you so much. We just thank you for this right now, Father, in your precious name. Amen.